0: Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Saturday, October 24th, 2020, showing that the Hubbard and O'Brien podcast never rests in bringing fresh content to its listeners. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today?
1: I'm great. What says Saturday like a podcast?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you. We're pr- trying not to make a habit out of it, but uh, we had a debate on Thursday, and now would be a good time, I think, to discuss some of the issues that were raised during that debate. Before we begin, let me remind students and instructors that if you'd like us to address a particular question or issue in a future podcast, you can contact us via email at at gmail Dot com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Glenn, one issue that came up in the debate is a question that we've discussed before concerning the trade-off involved with the pace of reopening businesses and schools. As we've already talked about, it, it's an issue certainly that affects college students who might be wondering when they will be able to return to campus full-time or when their family's business might be fully reopened, or when they or a parent or a sibling might be able to return to work. Have we learned anything new in the past few weeks that might affect how economists can contribute to the debate over the pace of reopening?
1: Well, it's a great question, Tony. And I I think we have, there's a lot of really interesting work going on by economists and also by healthcare professionals on the optimal pace of a reopening. If you think about what came up in the debate, both President Trump and Vice President uh, Biden have real points. I mean, President Trump's point is that closing an economy down is a blunt intervention by government can lead to very large employment and output losses. Vice President Biden is also right that reopening an economy too quickly uh, can lead to a resurgence of the virus and the need to shut down again. So the question is, how do you get in the middle of those two points and I think what economists would say, as we always do in principles, trade-offs. And here, one has to look at the trade-off between the speed uh, of reopening and health issues, which means a smarter reopening. Are we reopening in sectors, in parts of the country for individuals who might be less susceptible uh, to the virus, and more slowly for those or parts of the country Uh, that might be more so. Some colleges have reopened and are sort of semi-business as usual. Others are completely online and partly that reflects regional differences in in what's going on. So I do think economics has a lot to, to add here. And also with issues of what are the effects of being out of work for a long time? What are the effects of business closures for a long time? I expect we're going to see more and more commentary by economists, particularly after the election.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. One point that we we didn't discuss on previous podcasts, but I know that some economists have spent some time analyzing, is the, the loss of what economists call organizational capital as a result of businesses permanently closing. And by organizational capital, economists are usually referring to the fact that to start a business and to run it profitably, there are a lot of things that you have to figure out. You have to decide you know, what product should I produce. If you're thinking of opening a restaurant in a neighborhood, you know, should it be a Thai restaurant or an Italian restaurant? And then you have to do, uh, you have to recruit a workforce and get chefs and figure out how large the restaurant should be. You have to um, form relationships with suppliers who are providing you with food and other supplies you need and so on. So if that business closes down permanently, not just temporarily, but permanently, we've lost that organizational capital. Not to say that some other business won't at some point open up where that first business was, maybe another restaurant or or a different type of business where the, the restaurant that closed was. But that is still a loss to the economy. It's a loss to the neighborhood that they've lost a, a place where consumers can go and, and buy a service or good that, that they found desirable. And uh, that's something we sometimes overlook where we think, well, business closes, that's a, a tragedy for the owners who might have lost their life savings and it is a problem for the employees who have lost the jo- their jobs and they have trouble finding one right away. But there's also this organizational capital that's gone away that um, is also an additional economic damage that comes from permanent closures. One of the other things maybe we we can talk briefly about in this heading is a really contentious issue about reopening elementary and high schools. We know, and there's been some economic research, that lower-income students in particular tend to struggle more with online learning, either because they may lack access to -to up-to-date technology or because there may be no one available during the day to help them with the schoolwork. I saw a couple of recent working papers that talked about the fact that for older students, high school students who might be right or just over the, the age at which they can leave school, which is 16 in most states, if schools are closed for a while, they have a tendency to leave and not return. So that you may have this additional loss that comes from closing schools or making them very inconvenient for students to to continue in, that you may have some students who would otherwise have continued and gotten a a high school diploma uh, who don't because they end up, say, getting a part-time job and they stick with that rather than coming back and finishing their junior or senior years. You may have seen there was uh, an opinion column in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago that noted a striking fact that last month, about four times as many women as men dropped out of the labor force. And you can probably draw the conclusion that a lot of those women were motivated by the fact that they needed to provide daycare that is not often available, or they needed to supervise their children as they were engaged in online learning.
1: You know, these are really important points, Tony. And I I think that uh, the healing of the labor market is likely to be quite slow for the reasons uh, that you mentioned. And if you think about students, you have the potential for long-term economic damage. We know that there is a strong link between high school attainment and then community college attainment or four-year college attainment and subsequent wages. So educational decisions today can have very long-term effects. And I think what COVID has shown us is that we knew, of course, there are many inequalities in society, but I don't think we thought enough about the inequalities in the educational system. And access to technology, access to uh, even a public school education is critically important. We're also seeing, as as you suggest, effects in the labor market, of individuals, um, men or women, dropping out to uh, assist with children or because of other responsibilities. So I think the labor market issues, we started with talking about businesses and employees, but the labor market issues for more people in the country are going to be quite large going forward.
0: There was an article in the New York Times you may have seen a couple of days ago, and maybe we can provide a link in the notes for this podcast, but I thought it brought up some of the issues that, that you mentioned in terms of trade-offs, that inevitably as we think about the pace of reopening businesses and whether we should um, continue with online instruction in elementary and high schools or push for in-class instruction, uh, it, it looked at some of those and the, the headline of it was, school children seem unlikely to fuel coronavirus surges, scientists say, And there are a lot of complicating factors um, that go on in terms of trying to just judge to what extent uh, school openings um, can can lead to a surge in the coronavirus. But the article quoted a a researcher at the Boston University School of Public Health. And she was talking about the fact that in Europe, schools are much more likely to be open with in-person instruction than in the United States. And she made an interesting point about the Netherlands. She said the Netherlands actually has more restrictions on restaurants and private gatherings and even public transportation than is true of most U.S. states and cities, but has kept their schools fully open. And I I found her conclusion interesting. She said, it's just such a different priority, which I think really hits the nail on the head that It really is a question of priorities, and there's no definitive answer to how the priorities should be ordered, right? Whether reducing the spread of disease by restricting businesses and and in-class instruction should be a higher or lower priority than improving educational outcomes and making it possible for small businesses to survive and for people to have an easier time finding jobs. There's no obvious answer to how we should rank those priorities, and and in the end, how you judge the trade-offs that you were talking about is, as we talk a lot about in the book, is a normative question. And economists, doctors, epidemiologists can contribute to the discussion, but can't really resolve it, right? So some people think, well, can we just appeal to economics or to science to tell us whether we should or should not open schools or should or should not allow more people to be in restaurants and so on? We can't really do that because in the end, it's a matter of balancing these trade-offs and there's nothing in medical science or epidemiology or economics that gives us a definitive answer there.
1: I think that's right, Tony, but economics does have a lot to add positively to this debate. For example, going back to what I was saying before about long-term losses of fallbacks in educational attainment. That's a real issue that policymakers need to take into account uh, in, in a trade-off. Likewise, with small businesses, it, if you think of two different worlds, one where I think if I lose a restaurant or a small business, another one will just pop back up whenever the economy improves, as opposed to a, ru- a world where I think, no, there was important organizational capital for those businesses. Policymakers need to understand that difference. Uh, we can't tell them which decisions right or wrong but I think we can give them a a lot of inputs. And I think anything that has very long-term or permanent effects like the educational attainment should be at least a higher positive priority for information. And then whether it's a normative priority is up to politicians.
0: Yeah, that's a very good way I think of putting it that economics has a lot of things to say partly from economic reasoning of the type that we cover in the principles book and also from data collection and data analysis that economists uh, tend to specialize in, and I think can bring to bear some facts that uh, just as medical doctors and epidemiologists can in their spheres. Maybe this is a good segue to talk about healthcare, right, which was another issue raised during the debate. There's been a lot of discussion, uh, as you know, about a case being heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, and This was raised uh, during the debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden that possibly might result in the Affordable Care Act, usually referred to as Obamacare, being struck down. Now, neither of us is a constitutional scholar, but my reading of the media discussions of the case is that the Supreme Court's ruling is unlikely to Uh, uh, resulting in the elimination of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. In other words, it's unlikely to strike it down um, completely. That may be a correct interpretation or not, but for the sake of argument, let's assume I'm right and that when the next presidential term begins this coming January 20th, 2021, that the U.S. healthcare system looks pretty much as it does today. In other words, we have most of the Affordable Care Act in place. We know that the individual mandate was struck down a few years ago. So if we're in the same situation, January 20, 2021, as we are today, what changes would you recommend to the present Congress
1: that might improve improve the efficiency of the healthcare system? Well, it's a huge and great question, Tony. I, I, I think that the current U.S. healthcare system has a number of significant economic problems, whatever the Supreme Court decides or whatever Congress does, we know that while in some sense the U.S. is the envy of the world in healthcare innovation, we're hardly the envy of the world in the treatment of average people in the healthcare system, and we certainly spend more than any other country uh, relative to GDP. So what can we do to improve efficiency? Partly it's asking, what do we think government's role is here? I think economists would say if we were stepping back, we'd like everyone to have access to healthcare when they need it. So that's probably some kind of universal support for health insurance. But remember when economists use the word insurance, they have in mind an economic definition. So insurance is about catastrophic events. It's about my getting cancer or significantly sick, not about my going to the doctor for something routine. So it probably suggests support for catastrophic insurance and helping people build reserves for other kinds of health care. I can imagine conservatives doing that one way and progressives doing that another way. But I think that's really the path we need to take. And the more we fight incrementally, whether it's in court or in Congress, I worry economics gets further in the, in the back seat. What do you think?
0: I think those are good points that um, we have a system that's evolved over time. Uh, partly for political reasons. As many people know, during World War II, there were controls on the wages that companies could pay workers, which made it difficult for a company to attract new workers the usual way, which is to say, we'll raise the wages and salaries we offer and we'll get people to come work for us. So because wage um, ceilings meant that they couldn't do that, so they began, one of the things that some companies did was they began offering health insurance and the, uh, there were various tax decisions that were made that, that resulted in the, the amount that the companies were paying on behalf of people to provide them with health insurance was not taxable income to the people who were receiving that insurance. So, you know, it's the, the classic situation where if your company would give you thousand dollars as a raise, you'd have to pay a tax on that. But if they were adding $1,000 to your health care plan, you did not have to pay a tax on that. So it was kind of a bias towards people, workers saying, yeah, you know, I'd actually like to have a very nice, um, a nice plan. But as you say, as that system evolved, and as we, we added the the Medicare and Medicaid systems on it, and as then in 2010, when Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was, was added to it, we set up this system of insurance marketplaces or exchanges and then subsidized people who were buying policies there. We kind of have a, a, a jerry-built system, I guess you would say, that, that almost nobody would think was ideal if we started from scratch. So I think you make some very good points that maybe the best thing to do for whoever is president next january 20th is to step back and say you know rather than worrying about tweaking the subsidies on the exchanges or some other part of the of the uh, current system maybe we should go back to first principles and say what are we trying to do how is the best most efficient way to provide health insurance because as As you pointed out, even though the health outcomes in the United States are pretty good in terms of if you look at cancer survival rates and things like that, we do spend an awful lot compared to other countries. And it's unlikely that even if you believe that our health care outcomes are better than on average in other high-income countries, it'd be tough to make the argument that um, In fact, those outcomes are worth the additional amounts that we're spending. Maybe we can move on then to uh, another issue that came up in the debate, and that is environmental policy, uh, particularly the issue of climate change resulting from carbon emissions. So maybe it'd be worthwhile to step back and actually ask the basic question, as we do when we discuss environmental policy in the textbook of how economists approach questions of pollution, such as carbon emissions that are leading to climate change?
1: Well, it's a very important policy question, uh, Tony, and it's really a classic discussion of, of externalities. We know that greenhouse gas emissions like pollution generally have very large negative externalities. In fact, many scientists believe, and many economists as well, that climate change, or I like to think of it as it used to be called global warming, because I think it's more descriptive, uh, is actually an existential threat that needs to be dealt with. And the question is from an economic perspective, we're not politicians, we're, we're not about the normative, but we, we can help uh, with how to deal with an externality. And there's two families of, of policies. One would be to use prices uh, and the other quantities. So by prices, Uh, we talk in the textbook about um, the use of taxes to counteract externalities. So here we'd be talking about, let's say, a carbon tax of some sort. An alternative way would be to focus on quantities through command and control policies that typically just limit pollution here, greenhouse gas emissions in certain sectors of the economy. You could think of it as the electricity generating sector or um, pollution from automobiles and, and, and so on. I think economists generally believe that price-based approaches are going to yield uh, a more efficient, that is a lower cost way of getting the same reduction in greenhouse gases. But that's going to be an issue politically because while uh, Vice President Biden and President Trump have had a heated exchange on a lot of environmental issues, I really haven't heard the mention of price systems like carbon taxes from Vice President Biden or from President Trump. So I I think this is going to be hard, but I think that's going to need to be the debate. Do we want to do it through command and control or through the price system, assuming, of course, that we have leaders that want to take action?
0: Yeah, I think you have set out the issue very well. As we talk about in the book, you go all the way back to the beginnings of economists' analyzing externalities. The uh, British economist with the great name of Arthur Cecil Pogu, who said that um, the problem was with an externality such as carbon emissions that the people, the businesses that are emitting the carbon don't bear the full cost, right? So if burning gasoline in cars or burning coal to create electricity increases carbon emissions as it does, and causes global warming, that is a cost that neither the utility nor the automobile company nor the consumer who is driving the car bears. So Pegu's response, as you point out, was, well, if the problem is one of the wrong price, that in fact carbon emissions are priced too low, then we ought to put on a tax. In fact, economists call them Peguvian taxes in um in honor of, of Arthur Cecil Purgu. And I think a reason why it's appealing to economists is we think of prices as being the essential part of the market system, that they send signals that both consumers and firms respond to these signals, that uh, if the price of a product goes up, for instance, that's a signal to businesses that they ought to produce more, and it may be a signal to consumers as well that they should um, consume less. So the idea of a carbon tax is that it would increase the price of carbon emissions and that it would cause businesses and consumers then to take into account the full cost of the carbon that's being emitted, including the global warming costs. And economists, as you know, have done some work on attempting to estimate what that tax might be if we did want to, um, to use a carbon tax that would cause um, people then to, to, to make decisions that might reduce carbon emissions. And I guess the other part of it that is, is appealing to economists in using taxes rather than the sort of direct quantity controls that you pointed out, or sometimes even in the past we've had situations where the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, has mandated a certain type of technology be used to reduce pollution. But one of the advantages of using taxes instead is that you have the usual advantage in a market system that you have some decentralized decision making. You have a lot of different businesses then searching around for new ways of either generating electricity or in the case of automobiles, improving electric automobiles, uh, those sorts of things. And in a sense, you're, you're sort of tapping the, the uh, inventiveness of businesses and entrepreneurs and letting them make decisions that might be hard for somebody at the Environmental Protection Agency, even if they're very knowledgeable and very hardworking and as public-spirited as you could, as you could want, they may not, in the end, have the, the knowledge to, uh, to, to come upon approaches that may be more effective. And of course, there's also the, the, the fact that the, um, the person at the EPA doesn't have the incentive that a, a, an entrepreneur would have uh, to make sure that um, he, he or she minimizes the costs of producing whatever product it is by making sure that it is car- as carbon friendly as possible. Okay, maybe we could move on then to another issue and there were some references to tax policy in the debate. And on our last podcast, we discussed the possible effects of raising the corporate income tax. So we may not necessarily want to revisit that, but maybe we can reframe the issue in a more general sense. Economists know that all taxes create disincentives. Right? We need tax an activity. People do less of it, whether it's working, saving, investing, opening a new firm. So there's bound to be some loss of economic efficiency from taxes because we push people away from doing what they would otherwise do. But the government has services to provide and it has to tax something right, to raise the revenue to pay for those services. So suppose that Congress and the president, whoever he may be, next year, decide they want to spend, we'll say, $5 trillion on goods and services, right? So this would be aircraft carriers, salaries of um, people at the Environmental Protection Agency, and subsidizing research on cancer and everything else that the federal government does. So let me ask you then, Glenn, what would be the most economically efficient way – once again, we're sort of saying we're starting from scratch – and we're leaving aside the details of the tax system as it's evolved over the years. We're starting from scratch. We we need to raise $5 trillion because we decided that's the amount we want to spend on goods and services. What would be the most economically efficient way for the federal government to raise that $5 trillion in tax revenue if we were starting completely from scratch?
1: Well, your question, Tony, has two super important premises that's worth you know, going back to our discussion in the book um, to remind one is just that the really big fiscal decision a nation, a state, a locality makes is the size of government. That's the first order one. Then we finance it and we can finance it by taxes. We can finance it taxes today or taxes tomorrow, meaning borrowing. But really, the size of government, the $5 trillion in your example and how that's spent, that's the first order fiscal decision. For taxes, I think we would like to raise taxes in as efficient a manner as possible, but there are also two other uh, concerns for taxes. One would be tax fairness. So we wouldn't want efficiency alone if it meant the tax burden were perceived as unfair. And we also don't want a tax system that's overly complex because then the costs of compliance are another form of cost, just like an efficiency cost. So I think most economists would say, if really efficiency were your only objective, the right way to finance a government would be through broad-based consumption taxes. Those tend to have the smallest losses in terms of distortions of things like work or saving or investment or entrepreneurship. To improve fairness at the same time, one could also add supplementary high income taxes. Uh, The late David Bradford, an economist at Princeton University for many years, argued for something he called the X-Tax, which was a kind of broad-based consumption tax, but with some high-end wage taxes to improve fairness. Those sorts of systems are also less complex uh, than what we have now. The actual tax debate that's happening, though, isn't really about the size of government, which unfortunately we're just not talking about at all or even about how best to fund it, but a fight over particular taxes. And I think the debate mentioned two and didn't mention a third that's curious given our earlier discussion. So two that got mentioned were a variety of forms of capital income taxation, like capital gains taxes. Those tend to be highly inefficient if we're looking at just efficiency as a metric. Because they wind up reducing asset prices and perhaps delaying or distorting the allocation of capital. By the same token, some consider them an essential part of fairness. And so I think that's going to be a big debate going forward. A second is the Social Security payroll tax. Vice President Biden proposed the largest payroll tax increase in history, which is quite something. And I think would call out the need to remind ourselves what's the incidence of the Social Security payroll tax? It would be Certainly born in the long run by employees, all of us who might pay it or would be paid on our behalf. A third tax that wasn't mentioned is the carbon tax. And that's sort of ironic, given the importance of climate change to the economy and to Vice to President Biden's uh, uh, agenda, and the fact that, as we were talking about earlier, a price approach might be better than a quantity approach. It's a bit of a mystery, but so far, no carbon tax.
0: Yeah, you make some very good points there. I know with respect to the payroll tax that one of the things that often shocks new college graduates when they get their first paycheck is uh, their first paycheck from holding a full-time job is they look at the amount that's being withheld and the payroll tax to pay for Social Security and Medicare, and they're astonished that typically they're paying more there than they are in federal income taxes or state income taxes, if they're in a state that that has an income tax, and as you mentioned, there is this trade-off between efficiency and equity, or the political considerations that Congress has taken into account when it sets up the tax system. And it is peculiar that we finance the Social Security and Medicare systems through a tax on payrolls rather than just through the general personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. And as you know, it was largely a political decision back when Social Security was set up in the 1930s, that uh, Congress and then President Roosevelt didn't want Social Security to be seen as being uh, a form of uh, government aid to poor people, but instead as being something that people would, would earn through their working lives and would have funds taken from their their paychecks and then put aside and then would be used to fund uh, the Social Security payments they would receive after they retired. And that was really kind of a a political decision to make the, the Social Security Act more palatable to people who at that time in particular were reluctant to see the federal government take on the new responsibility of, in effect, providing pensions to retired people. But that was the 1930s. We're in the 2020s now. So one thing that is potentially worth thinking about is maybe the time has passed when we actually need to have the Social Security Medicare systems funded through a payroll tax. Maybe we can go back and think, okay, what would be the, the most efficient and equitable way to pay for these because, in fact, um, even if we were to remove, as as Vice President Biden would like to do, the cap on the highest income that is subject to the Social Security and and Medicare taxes, it's still the case that there are are a lot of lower-income people who may be paying little or sometimes no federal income tax at all, but are still paying a substantial payroll tax. So in that sense, the payroll tax can be seen as uh, regressive, And you could say that, in fact, you'd be helping lower income people if you move to a different way of funding it. And you mentioned the carbon tax that some people have even said that the, that depending on where you set the carbon tax, that it could generate funds that might make it possible to at least cut, if not eliminate, the payroll taxes. Okay, Glenn, I think that that was a great discussion. There were many issues raised in the debate, and we weren't able to get to all of them, but I think we, we hit some of the highlights. A reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes, where you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please keep checking our blog at Hubbard and O'Brien Economics for new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And remember, if you have an issue or concern you'd like us to discuss in a future podcast, please send us an email at economics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.